0: This is Labor Wave Radio. Labor Wave Radio is an independent podcast and it's sustained by our subscribers on Patreon. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash labor wave. Based on your membership tier, you'll receive gifts and early releases to all of our upcoming episodes. And if you can't contribute monetarily, you can help out our show by following us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts and leaving us ratings and reviews. Okay, another riveting episode of Comrades Read Together. This time we're reading a really excellent work called Single Jack Solidarity by Stan Weir. I'm joined by a couple of comrades, Tim and Luke, both past guests on the show. So you recognize their voices if you listen. But I think by way of entering into this conversation, what we wanted to do was like give a quick summary and biography of who Stan Weir was. So Essays in this book that we're going to discuss were written by rank and file worker Stan Weir. He was working in the ranks his whole life, primarily as a sailor and longshoreman. Grew up in the 30s and got to see, in some ways, for, in Los Angeles, got to see, in some ways, firsthand, a lot of the radicalism of the early CIO unions that, and then eventually their kind of mollification. He joined. Not the army. What was the other one that he joined? Somebody like?
1: Merchant Marine.
0: He joined the Merchant Marine because he was a cautious supporter of the war effort. He was against fascism, but he was like a follower of CLR James, whose uh, analysis of the situation was that the capitalist base of the United States fighting against fascism and Nazism wasn't necessarily going to lead to less totalitarianism in the world, but rather more So, Stan Weir couldn't bring himself to join the army, but joined the merchant marine instead. He from there became a member of the AFL Sailors Union of the Pacific or the SUP and eventually became a member of the ILGWU or a a second rate member, even not exactly a member. So, those are kind of quick broad strokes of Stan Weir. He was always involved in rank and file organizing very critical of union bureaucracy and leadership, had lifelong companionships with people like James Baldwin, which was a really fascinating essay. We're not really probably going to discuss that as much, but folks should check out the book. And it's a very touching essay, him talking about his lifelong friendship with James Baldwin. Got to meet people like CLR James, was a member of the Workers' Party, believed that the Soviet Union was... A form of state capitalism rather than a degenerated worker's state, like some (laughs) vulgar Trotskyists used to say. So really interesting guy. Had a fascinating life. I guess he lived in New York at one point. He was all over the place and really just kept his finger on the pulse of organized labor throughout his whole life. I'm not sure when he died. He died in the early 90s. Is that right?
2: I think it was the early 2000s. He shares a lot of parallels with um, Martin Glaberman, and I think uh, he also shared uh, the general time that he passed away. And uh, Martin Glaberman also passed away uh, early 2000. And Martin Glaberman is also a rank and file worker who was a student of CLR James and all that. But that's, uh, I guess, for when we do a comrades read on uh, punching out.
0: Yeah, that I, that's on my list definitely. <laughs> so. One last little thing about his bio that I think is important to note is that he had a 16-year-long lawsuit, like a legal fight against Harry Bridges, the former president of the ILWU or ILGWU. Uh, And that was relating to the second rate status that uh, what were called B members of the um, union who are on a second tiered contract, their fight in terms of being disenfranchised by the union he was one of the people really in the forefront of fighting that legal fight and ultimately did not succeed, but definitely informed a lot of his perspectives on organized labor throughout those years. So, what we talked about before recording was that there's a series of essays in this entire book. His primary focus is on business unionism, providing a critique of organized labor in the United States. And we want to focus on those collection of essays because they're more pertinent to the show's focus. They also present like a pretty solid analysis of what Stan Weir thought were the problems with organized labor. And we're going to go by this one essay at a time. So the first essay is called American Labor on the Defensive, a 1940s Odyssey. And I think I'm going to go ahead and pass it off or open this up for you all in asking you to help us come up with a quick summary of what this essay is about Kind of the key points within it.
2: This essay basically goes from a very quick history of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, uh, talking about how there were all of these independent unions getting set up in the early 1930s, being put together by communists and labor radicals in the tradition of the IWW and the Socialist Party and Eugene Debs and Daniel De Leon. Uh, And then it sort of goes over how officials in AFL unions uh, saw this and sort of capitalized on it, seeing that this was going to be an opportunity to form these truly massive fighting organizations uh, that people like John L. Lewis uh, could sit at the top of. And even though John L. Lewis uh, wasn't himself a radical, he did recognize an opportunity being made by radicals. Stan then goes into sort of a history of his time in uh, the Sailor's Union, um, just sort of going over like how the Union uh, first demonstrated for him the ability for uh, sailors to just kind of enforce respect towards themselves in the face of like bosses trying to show them up or dress them down and how that gave him a lot of confidence. It's really amazing because like he's talking about how, yeah, I basically, you know, I left high school uh, and then I got a job on a boat and then the union uh, showed me what was what all like at the age of 19. And personally, I was very uh, jealous of that, of being able to uh, just right out of high school, join this militant union that like changes your whole perspective on life. He then uh, starts to talk about the wartime no-strike promise that uh, the AFL and CIO unions were doing, culminating in the 1946 uh, strike wave, uh, which was like kind of this um, uh, moment where uh, labor is uh, confronting capital with these really big demands because there's this huge buildup of uh, unfulfilled grievances. And basically, labor officials are at a point where they're going to lose their positions in the labor bureaucracy if they don't uh, you know, clear this log jam and give the members what they want. Um, so there's this huge strike that I think basically, I, I think it like could be termed a general strike just given how many unions were participating. And then unfortunately unions start to break ranks. And this was actually something that um, really raised my eyebrows. UE, which kind of has this reputation today as like the reddest of the red unions, uh, was actually the first union to break ranks. But I think something that uh, Stan sort of goes into here is that it wasn't really like uh, UE's fault necessarily. I mean, you know, they did choose to do that. Um, but what he goes into is just that on the job committees that had built the CIO into this massive... Weapon for the working class had been atrophied and atomized, and so there wasn't this interunion communication that it used to exist, Um, and so there just wasn't a a united communist-led front that could really provide a backstop for this uh, this action. He closes with a thesis that as long as uh, this ideological vacuum continues to exist. Uh, American workers will have to remain on the defensive. Uh, And he writes that in 1975.
0: Do you want to add anything to that, Tim?
2: It's the history of the CIO as told by Stan Weir. Our
1: common conception of the CIO is that it was some sort of radical social project, which the unions that made it up certainly were. But the CIO itself, and particularly its wartime consolidation, turned it into just a shadow of the AFL, uh, the same sort of bureaucratic business unionism that had been practiced traditionally by the AFL.
0: Right, I agree. This is an interesting, I think this is consistent throughout the essays by Weir's that he really corrects a lot of the story, the conventional story that's told about the CIO being like the militant union of, of the sepia-tinged past and mm-hmm. points out, I think in really interesting ways, points out that even like the, variants of the communist led unions, like the communist leadership, there was a lot of, there's a layer of them, a crust of the upper echelons that are very conservative in their union practices and willing to sell what's called labor peace to the bosses, you know, to fit into the status quo as it were, just to like, you know, have a vehicle for mobilizing their base for other efforts. So he blames, he's saying like, don't romanticize the communist here. A lot of the communists were actually very conservative too. Uh, And they did a lot to bust up the rank and file organizing that was happening in the early CIO. I think you almost might want to say the proto-CIO before it became like a formalized structure. And like you're saying, Luke, too, UE, it's kind of predictable that a group like UE would break from the rest of them, take an early settlement that weakens the position in like one particular round of negotiations. Because at that point, the rank and file had already been totally atomized and the bureaucracy was hardened according to Weir. So it's not like, this is like the natural outcome of what happens when you strip away power from the rank and file. I think it's a really good essay. I think there's a lot probably in the essay that we could keep talking about, but I know we want to get through some of the other essays first, just like quick synopsis of each, because a lot of them have consistent themes and analysis that Weir presents. So then we can like maybe dig more into the meat of all of these things. There is one quick thing, though, that I did want to mention in this essay that I really appreciate and enjoyed. It's very brief, but early in the essay, Weir did mention this very consistent hurdle that was hard to overcome in a generational replacement of unionists, saying the militant unionists, the unionists that were part of the rank and file origins of the CIO, they were getting old, and they were getting replaced by a younger generation of people who suddenly saw higher wages than they'd ever experienced. They didn't actually have to be a part of building from scratch this militant base from the beginning. And that became a big challenge to maintain this institutional memory past the baton, so to speak. You know, The replacement of uh, the generational forces was one of the things Weir points out helped kind of create atomization. I don't think he blamed it on that. But just an interesting thing, because I think that's something that we should ponder for today. Uh, There's not a lot of intergenerational organizing going on, or not enough of it anyway.
1: You want me to do uh, a little synopsis of the next one?
0: Yeah, please do. So the next one's called USA, The Labor Revolts. So Tim, you want to tell us what that's about?
1: It's a much earlier essay. This was from 1967. And it Sort of chronicles the rank and file revolts and strikes that you know had been building up and and sometimes explosively built up uh, since sort of the post war compromise at the Treaty of Detroit. And uh, these were revolts, you know, and strikes not just against employers. This was a, a lot of this was uh, directed at union leadership. And and oftentimes we look back at this as sort of an era as the height of union power and prestige. So it's good to remember, I think, uh, just how disempowering the institutional unions were and are for rank and file and the level of sort of hostility and resentment workers directed at their misleadership. It also shows that the real limits to overthrowing leadership, because a lot of big unions got their leadership kicked out, and they were still sort of stuck within that existing labor relations framework of the post-war compromise.
0: Yeah, and this is another essay where he'd already done it a little bit before, but talking about Walter Ruther and his leadership (laughs) of UAW as somebody not to romanticize either. Walter Ruther comes up with quite a bit, but a very, very uh, manipulative, you know, leader of the UAW that like came in like kind of a bull, you know, willing to say, like, let's strike, let's fight for shop floor power against speed ups, open the books, talking about you know, the financial books of the UAW, or of the the big three autos, all this stuff, and then just like very willingly compromises and sells out the whole workforce. That was, like Luke mentioned before, willing and committed to wildcat and like even create something of a general strike. Another moment where he's kind of correcting the story. Uh, the next one on is called Doug Fraser's Middle Class Coalition. Doug Frazier is another UAW president that he points his uh, laser beam target at. And this one I think I can summarize pretty quickly. It was largely a moment where Doug Frazier expresses this disillusionment with organized labor's dependence on the Democratic Party and the two-party system, starts talking all big and using rhetoric, flashy rhetoric about how it's time for organized labor to become independent and a force again. But realistically, what he had done was like, gathered a coalition of officialdom, of leaders, of like predictable players, everybody from the top. And that's what Stan Weir points out was like, what he was trying to do was create a coalition from the top, not to actually create any independence from the Democrats, but to try to reform the Democrats from within, which funnily enough is basically the, a repeat. <laughs> you know, This was like one of the many times that this has been tried. And this was the early proto-DSA. The DSOC, right? What was that called? The Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, I believe.
2: Yeah, I think actually Michael Harrington, uh, who's generally recognized as like the founder of the DSA, is uh, listed here along with the likes of uh, Tom Hayden. And yeah, this is uh, 1978. Um, and I think it's also important to uh, mention that Doug Fraser is creating uh, like a top-down coalition sort of thing. And that's kind of because that's where he's coming from, because like there was this uh, labor and business council where like the the five biggest unions and the five biggest businesses in America had this council that was sort of like chaired by the president of the United States. Um, and Frazier is kind of putting all of this together uh, as like kind of a reaction as what he to what he saw in that body where it like workers were getting sold out. um, And he like walks away from it. But because he only knows that top down coalition thing, that's the only thing he can think to build.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me of a conversation I had some time ago with Mary Beth Seitz-Brown about the need to always be doing deep organizing. And her point was primarily that First off, it strengthens democracy, but also if you don't already have a base that's organized, if you're trying to create new projects, new organizing, you can't because you don't have anything to tap into. Doug Frazier only had the coalition from the top to pull as resources, as allies, but he had no connection to the rank and file, to like the actual base workers that would be necessary to do anything that could break from the democratic party machine or whatever the project might be. If that's really what you want to do, like reform the Democrats. <laughs> You're going to have to have a mass working class apparatus to pull from to do that. People willing to stop production. Doug Frazier, even the president of the UAW, didn't even have that because that's how distant the bureaucracy at the top had gotten from the rank and file below. So I I think it's a pretty good essay. And I think that that's kind of the, the summary, uh, the synopsis of it, is he mainly points out, almost in kind of being nicer to Doug Frazier, is more that, It doesn't matter that it was Doug Frazier. It's not really about him and his bad ideas. It's his position in the union hierarchy that made him unable to actually do anything to increase working class power in this country. As a bureaucrat, as somebody that can only pull from the top of any coalition, he just simply was positioned in a way that makes him incapable of organizing anything from below, of actually building the necessary power to accomplish any ambitious goals.
1: Yeah, that was that was my sort of snarky one-line summation of it is Frazier's trying to build power with damn near anybody but the workers.
0: Right. Now, the next essay, I'll let whoever wants to take this one take it, is called The Failure of Business Union. So what is this one about?
2: Yeah, this one is basically um, what Doug Frazier said was going to happen uh, and which was already happening by the late 70s. Uh, just coming into full swing. So this essay was written in 1988, and it basically chronicles. Um, if you've ever, you know, looked at a graph of union membership in America as like a percent of the workers, you know that uh, it starts to go down uh, in the 1950s, uh, and then in the late 1970s and 80s, that line just craters. Um, and this is sort of an accounting of that. He gives like four main reasons for this uh, that are pretty short. And if you don't mind, I'll uh, just read, read them off. So uh, on page 326, he says, uh, what is the cause of the current crisis in unions? On one level, the crisis is based on changes in production on a worldwide scale. Number one, the new world economy is no longer based on national production and international exchange, but on international production. By international production, we mean such phenomena as the world car assembled in one set of countries and sold in others. Number two, operating in this new world economy are new forms of business organization, the multinational or transnational corporation. Number three, These corporations use a new technology based on the microchip, the computer, the robot, the optical cable, and satellite transmission, which have revolutionized production, warehousing, sales, and finance. And four, and finally, all these changes have been largely based upon a revolution in transportation involving uniform containerization, the automation of sea and land cargo. And then uh, he just kind of goes here's how. All of those factors have uh, played out in unions uh, and closes it with here is what a uh, a socialist or union militant intervention in the labor movement uh, would look like using a uh, a nine point program for that.
0: Right. And he calls that horizontal unionism, that like new formation, which I thought was interesting. Like, I don't know if that's a term that's really caught on or I at least haven't personally heard it referenced very often. But I, I'd be curious more to like hear how it'd be fleshed out in terms of the structure of horizontal unionism. But by that, he means since the supply chain has gotten global in capitalism and has effectively been able to move capital around freely, the worker workforce of unions is going to also have to figure out how to be more horizontal in their organizing, ranks to ranks, rather than people at the top, the people at the top, communicating and trying to mobilize a base. I think it's a pretty interesting insight and pretty like, when you hear it, it's like obviously correct, but one that seems like so unavailable to grasp for for many union supporters today.
2: Yeah, I think it can probably be like summed up as a vision of unionism that is rather than a single monolithic organization, it is a network of committees on the job. And he he closes it, uh, in order for the new horizontal union structure to avoid bureaucratic control, the new networks must emphasize the authority at the level of the workplace, at the level of the shop floor committee, not the level of outside officers.
0: I think also in this essay, I underline this because I feel like there's one paragraph in particular that is pretty much like his main thesis in terms of his critique of union bureaucracy. And it's early on when he's talking about how capital has become a global phenomenon. It's always been, right? But like, it's just completed in terms of becoming a global phenomenon. After blaming, you know, obviously the offensive of capital, he also points out what he says is the key to the crisis and understanding the role of labor officials in this whole phenomenon. So he says, in this period of momentous changes, it's been the union bureaucrats who have disarmed and isolated working people. They've negotiated a way of the right to strike during the term of a labor contract. They've allowed corporations to introduce automation and eliminate thousands of jobs under the guise of increasing productivity and, and promoting progress. They have permitted multinationals to attack workplaces one at a time, and they have opposed the efforts of the rank and file members to build solidarity networks. Um, and I think that's like, again, probably his key thesis in terms of the problem with bureaucracy and the union-hardened Hierarchical bureaucracy of unions is that they've really disarmed the workers they've taken away their powers to strike, taken away their powers to organize horizontally uh, and really like gotten themselves so complicit with the bosses with capitalism that they can't they can't really break out of it
1: yeah and he particularly uses an example that the p nine strikes at Hormel as an example of just how the international union was able to absolutely crush a local because they were pla you know they were coloring outside the lines and that was much more threatening than them actually losing the strike.
0: So there's a couple more essays in this section of the book. Next one is is a shorter essay, but really really has a lot in it. Is the Australian Doc Strike and this was a co-authored essay with George Lipsitz who's actually the author of the next essay.
2: Yeah, this one, uh, The Australian Doc Strike, uh, uh, this essay was written in 1998. I think it's only like five or six pages long. And it is absolutely wild um, because in summation, in the late 1990s, uh, the Australian Dock Workers Union was just something that the Australian government decided it needed to take down a peg, if not destroy outright. And to do that, they uh, hired mercenaries that they trained in Dubai for millions of dollars they spent on this effort and then brought them in as like strike breakers, basically. It's an incredibly harrowing epic because... Uh, there's like this international uh, solidarity movement that kicks off, like places as far away as I think Europe, South America, and Japan all um, uh, refuse to handle the hot cargo moved by the strikebreakers in Australia. So, just like this global uh, solidarity movement supporting the dock workers in Australia. It's really surprising. Like, it's the sort of thing where I think you could probably put it in the annals of just great labor struggles that have that should have multiple books written about them alongside stuff like uh the Seattle General Strike of 1919 or the uh, uh Minneapolis Teamsters Strike of the 1934.
0: Yeah, and I it's one of those moments where you realize how shitty your history classes in public school were <laughs> and college, <laughs> you know, like I'd never heard about this I grew up in the nineties, you know, I was like a kid in the nineties, but still like this never crossed my radar in my entire life. And how does that happen? I agree with you, Luke, like there's so many labor stories that would make great epic movies. Uh, They'll never reach it. Scorsese only makes the opposite. Um, But yeah, this is definitely one of them. There should be so much more that we know about this. It just should be so much more common knowledge. I think let's wrap up the summaries of the essays. This next one, I I feel like there's not much that really needs to be said about it. It's not written by Stan Weir. It's written by George Lipsitz called Stan Weir, Working Class Visionary. This was Lipsitz's flattering portrait of Stan Weir after his passing. It's very poetic. It's very like flattering eulogy to Stan Weir. But it has my favorite line, I think, in the whole series of essays. And it's funnily enough, it's my favorite Stan Lear Weir line that's not uttered by Stan Weir. But in the very beginning, as Lipsitz is imagining what Stan Weir would say to him about writing a eulogy about him, he writes this line, he says, Don't let people feel that their job is to sit back and admire somebody else. And so Stan Weir didn't say that technically or literally, but I really do feel like it's spot on. And that's what I think is so great about this book. Stan Weir as a person, I'm going to write that line and like put it in front of my desk or something. So I'm always reminded of this. It's like, don't let people just turn everybody else into heroes and think that their role is to, you know, be on the sidelines, right? Like get involved, be active in history. I think that is what Weir is pointing to all the time. Clearly the source of his outrage with the hardened union bureaucracy at the top is that he's clearly a believer that working class people are capable of their own liberation of having power over their lives, of actually having the power to administer their own unions. And that is a sentiment that I'm going off on a little soapbox here, but I don't think most people in organized labor actually believe that. Uh, I think most people that even position themselves as leftist and like union friends, they don't think working class people actually should be running their own unions or are capable of it. And we are clearly dead.
2: Yeah, so what you're saying is that I shouldn't create a vanguardist, uh, syndicalist organization based on Stan's thoughts called the Werewolves.
0: (laughs) Wait, can you say more about that? Well, you
1: you can't have a vanguardist syndicalist organization. That's the trick with syndicalism. (laughs) If you've got a vanguard, you're not syndicalist
2: anymore. Yeah, um, I I definitely like, uh, I really love that quote. Where uh, uh, Stan Weir uh, is exhorting George uh, Lipsitz, get them to see what's happening around them in the here and now, persuade them to listen to the workers, to respect what they know, and to help them do something about the way things are. And I I really, really like that of like, uh, your job isn't to necessarily bring these big ideas down from on high, but just to listen to the workers uh, and help them like to, the best you can do really is uh, take examples, uh, be a historian uh, for people.
0: Yeah. Like this reminds me in a conversation we were having before you were talking about the role that staff could have in organized labor. And I remember you describing it as like, they should just be storytellers like just staff storytellers. Do you remember this conversation? Do you want to elaborate on this?
2: So I don't remember this specific conversation, but this is like, I think something that I think about a lot where to me, like the role of a quote unquote professional or a quote unquote leader or what have you, whatever term you want to use it. I think a a conscious socialist's role in the union movement is somebody who uses their time to learn labor history and to bring it forward, bring those lessons forward for the workers to decide for themselves what they want to do with that information. Because as you were talking about, like, we don't learn these things in history classes. Uh, We aren't taught about, we aren't taught about the 1919 Seattle general strike. Uh, We aren't talking about the 1920 Turin general strike in Italy. And I think if you don't know about those things, even if you're like a really committed unionist, uh, you might not necessarily come across them and you won't necessarily know to uh, seek them out. And a lot of times people don't have either the time or the energy to seek them out because Jeff Bezos has uh, got them ruining their bodies in uh, in his warehouses because As he himself uh, says uh, in Jeff's own words, he doesn't believe in work-life balance. And so I think that those of us who do have uh, extra time and energy should spend that on being resources for education and uh, helping people like, see, here are examples of like, well, you might say that you want to assign this no strike clause, but here's what Signing No Strike Clauses did to the labor movement. Like we started signing them here and then that line of union membership started to go down.
0: Yeah, I like that concept a lot. I think it's one that should be, I hope that it gains more traction. Uh, Because also even the history itself is, is a contested story. Like as we were talking about with Stan Weir, one of the things that I think is great about his writing is he corrects a lot of the story around the communist-led unions of the CIO, he challenges people on when the bureaucracy and when the hierarchy of organized labor really began, you know what these unions were doing, and why they lost their power. And even when you do get access to some of these historical accounts in organized labor, the conventional stories don't sound like that. They're usually like John L. Lewis was like a badass, and he like, apparently wanted to punch the AFL CIO president in the face because he was so like, committed to industrial unionism, all this stuff. I mean, I, to be honest, I'm being honest, that was one of the stories that I learned at <laughs> a staff, re, staff retreat about John Lewis. So you don't get some of the critical takes, some of the behind-the-scenes stories. So it would be really important to have this, like historians of labor, be more of a, an investment that unions commit to.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's still a contested history. It's a really interesting thing. This comes forward, like, in waves. I mean, you know, from when Weir and Glaberman were writing about it, and then when Staunton Lynn picked it up and was writing about it, and, and it, it keeps going and, and because there's a lot of pushback. Basically, the problem of this thing flows from our story of the CIO did something. The CIO, you know, to put it bluntly, did jack shit, except administer existing – Industrial unions that were created by the working class. There's that great line from George Rawick that Marty Glaberman quotes that, you know, unions didn't didn't organize the strikes. The working class organized the strikes that created the unions. And we have to remember that. That's 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 the change agent. It's not some guy who has a degree and has negotiated a lot of contracts. That's not a change agent. In, in his first essay, those consolidated industrial unions that came out of the war were very much a creature of those particular conditions. They weren't the unions that first formed into the CIO that were organized in the early 30s. Uh, most of the, the huge membership bump from 37 to the entry into the war was new people coming in. And a lot of the unions were organized without the participation of the rank and file. They were organized by deals, sweetheart deals, which brokered by the government because there was a wartime buildup going on. And they were after labor peace. And that really conditioned, you know, that and the labor law conditioned them into being a certain type of union which was the traditional American AFL top-down union. And, you know, they made a big deal at the end of the war in the, in the early, you know, the late 40s and early 50s. that And and Ruther was really, you know, straightforward about it. The deal was to drop all the class war stuff in return for generally improving living standards and concessions being made. And, and that's all fine and good, but capital revoked that deal in the 70s. And our unions are still operating like that deal is still brokered, and and it's just not.
0: Well, and even the deal at the time, as Weir points out, the deal to get increased wages and benefits and quality of life improvements, well, I guess you can debate it, quality of life improvements, but material improvements in the short term, what Weir points out was that the capitalist class just made up for their loss in profits by increasing productivity. So at the end of the day, you're just like moving around the form, the experience of exploitation. They're not actually becoming less exploited. They're producing far more abundance than before. And they might get a little bit more in their paycheck. But at the end of the day, like actually the degree of exploitation has gotten exponentially worse. And this is what we're kept pointing out throughout is like automation and speed ups. Control over the shop floor and production is crucial to actually maintaining union power, actually having anything called union power.
2: And one of the recurring themes here uh, that Weir gets into is that it isn't just a matter of union bureaucracy, just selfishly uh, keeping themselves in power. Like part of this was just an inability to address the things that actually would have kept them in power. Like there's multiple instances across uh, multiple essays in here. Mm -hmm where a union leader has this huge backup of grievances um, like individually filed grievances on the part of workers uh, that the union just hasn't really done anything about is just kind of sitting on them and uh, if they could just address those then you know the the membership would stop like trying to get rid of them by running new candidates and everything But because uh, these aren't uh, fighting organizations anymore, you can't do those uh, individual fights for those individual grievances. And so they also undermined their power, because um, one of the other things that they talk about is um, the issue of uh, job control, both like what work we do, and how fast we do it, and how do we do it. And it The other sort of part of that uh, in terms of how we do it is what is the role that automation uh, plays in this? Uh, And in multiple instances, uh, he goes into how uh, the bosses demanded uh, automating this or that part of the process and multiple labor leaders from John L. Lewis to the communist Harry Bridges cave on this issue of automation And it ends up wrecking their unions out from under them because uh, it it takes all the dang jobs away. Because they can, not because they can do the exact same job, but because you can do the job uh, with fewer people, with more output. And because they weren't willing to fight on control of the job and how the production process happens, capitalists were able to introduce those new automation techniques, that new machinery. Uh, which threw people out of uh, a job. And then the last thing I want to say on my current rant is, um, I think this is actually why you could consider the Luddites to be one of the first uh, labor movements in history, because a lot of people think that they were just like anti-technology. But in like the writing about them, in the way that they described themselves, uh, they were uh, specifically targeting those machines which were putting them and their families and their communities out of work and so i think that the the real you know heart of the issue is control over uh the job itself like no amount of wage increases uh, or better benefits or anything like that is going to substitute for uh, worker control of the job
0: yeah, I think that's an interesting argument about the Luddites. I've always had a soft spot for them too. Um, and obviously, like the history is like from the perspective of those the elites, right? So they're going to depict the Luddites in the way that's more favorable to them. But what you're saying about Luddites and uh, Tim, what you were just saying about the strike, it reminds me of this conversation I was having recently. Because as you're pointing out, workers invented the strike. Workers also even sabotaged the machines when they recognized that their livelihoods are at stake under it, right? That this is a source of oppression to them. It's not a liberatory technology. It's actually an oppressive technology. People always call this stuff spontaneity. They always say this was a spontaneous eruption. The workers did it spontaneously. The CIO, the early CIO was built spontaneously by workers on the ground. And I've started to wonder if by labeling things after the fact as like spontaneous eruptions of workers, even like the West Virginia teacher strike, right? Spontaneous thing. I feel like this is probably a way that people are delegitimizing the capacity of workers to ever be considered professional organizers, right? It's always the professionals that call things spontaneous because they didn't do it, right? They're not the ones that were actually on the ground helping organize day to day. So then it gets like labeled as a spontaneous eruption of workers, just like a weird episodic blip. And I'm this is like my new emerging. Argument here. I'm not sure. I'm convinced of this, but I'm starting to wonder how much of this is just like a way of insisting that there's a permanent separation between the professionals and the non-professionals. And workers are always on the side of non-professionals. They could never possibly be considered experts at organizing. It's not. They don't have the capabilities of it. I don't know. What do y'all think about? <laughs> what do y'all think about my my high idea?
2: You're right on. Um, I think you're onto something there. <laughs> I think sometimes like even self-described Marxists like kind of miss these sort of things. Like, you know, August Babel was a German worker uh, who went on to be like a leader in, uh, in the SPD and everything. And um, like there, uh, Stan Weir himself is, was a rank and file worker who has put together this magisterial collection of essays, which really run the gamut. Of um, like every like uh, chapter of labor's history from the 1930s to the 1990s, and so yeah, I think there is like absolutely a uh, unearned cynicism about the capacity of workers.
0: I think it's also um, on that note about Stan Weir and his like clearly somebody on the front line of a lot of efforts writes this amazing book that's very unknown, at least amongst, like I have never encountered Sam Weir's name or this book up until you all introduced it to me. So hopefully it reemerges as a popular thing to read, but I've met a lot of union folks. I've never encountered this work. I've never heard of it, but this was somebody that was also like respected and had lifelong friendships with people like CLR James and James Baldwin, like really, interesting argument he makes in the book in a couple of instances is about how there was always these opportunities for intellectuals and workers, radicalized workers and radicalized intellectuals to create affinities, to have like spaces that they shared together. And I feel like Stan Weir probably considers himself one of those radicalized workers that was sharing space with radicalized intellectuals like C.L.R. James. But he points out that the union bureaucracy the top-down structure of unions that was imposed basically forbade that possibility from ever happening because intellectuals, radicalized intellectuals, the only ability they had to get to unions was through the officialdom. So they were like necessarily detached from the rank and file. So I think Stan Weir similarly would point out that another problem is that this like inability to recognize workers as capable of organizing their own unions Also comes from this top down structure that makes it impossible for even people that are interested in these subjects, like intellectuals, academics, Marxists, whatever, they can't get access to it because they don't have the easy access to the rank and file, even today, right? It's just there's such a strong separation between these segments of the population. So it's probably another reason that our knowledge is so bifurcated and we look at things as like these are professional organizers over here. And these are amateurs over here and they happen to be the rank and file.
2: Yeah, I think that's totally right. Where like the, the important thing is, uh, studying like rank and file history and recognizing the agency of the working class. Like I put together a Das Kapital reading group recently. Uh, one of the things that I noticed in, uh, at the end of volume one, is that Marx goes into sort of the history of labor law in England. And actually from 1799 to I think 1825, unions and uh, combinations of workers were just outright illegal. And then in 1825, they reversed those laws. Uh, And even Marx, who's like generally regarded as like uh, inspiring vanguardists or a vanguardist himself, or like this uh, highbrow intellectual who's disdainful of workers, even Marx recognizes that it was the agency of workers uh, resisting this that made the capitalist class so scared that they had no choice but to repeal these laws uh, against unions and combinations. And so focusing the agency on the workers and their activity Uh, is something that I think socialist uh, historians, people who invoke the likes of uh, Marx and Lenin, need to understand that even those guys uh, were looking at the agency of workers. And so I would say two Marxists, I would consider one myself. You're not a good Marxist if you are not uh, thinking about workers in terms of their own agency. That's a huge
1: thing for me. And and I think we're sort of conditioned by our experiences a little bit. The idea of open class struggle has been off the table for a really long time. That was very much the point of the the early 30s. That was open warfare. That was class struggle happening on a vast scale. And the experience of the war and the tamping down and the depoliticization of working class life, that was the conditioning. That happened that resulted from and 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 because of the post war compromise, and we've lived through a very protracted period of pretty low levels of actual class struggle i mean there there are you know there's always eruptions and and even even last summer, I would definitely characterize what we saw with the Floyd rebellion as class struggle right, but we don't even maybe recognize it as such as I'm, I would never call myself a Marxist necessarily, but I think that's the only way out is that struggle. There is not like a technical fix to this shit.
0: <laughs> well, I think we should come to a conclusion here. And just on what you're talking about, Tim, one of the things that I really like about this book, even through all of the critique and the analysis of like how things have been basically destroyed how like rank and file rebellions have been suppressed stan weir consistently comes back to the moments of like the rank and file and their agency continuing to organize despite the odds like every essay i feel like begins with him saying there's a new trend of workers taking power over their unions yeah like, they're pushing back again they're pushing back again like every couple of decades he's like hey it's happening it's happening so I guess I want to maybe wrap this up by just pointing to those places where Weir was optimistic. Uh, it was He it was, had a lot of optimism in the working class itself. And maybe today, like, where do we see expressions of this horizontal unionism that Stan Weir would call it? Like, what, what do you all think? Are there moments that you take like, uh, inspiration or optimism from in today's contemporary class struggle?
1: That's actually one of the things that really strikes me about him every time. I, I dip back into this, is that he is always looking for an organizational form that, that will express sort of like his experience of class struggle and and his, you know, life. And, you know, so he's always coming back to stuff, you know, that's based on the job and is rooted in solidarity and primary work groups and at the point of production, stuff like that. Do I see it a lot? You know, I, I did listen to a thing today about international Amazon workers. That's a totally shop floor-based movement in Europe. And they're consciously doing it like that, not, not just because they're winging it. So it's spread across Poland and into Germany and France and basically all the Amazon sites. And they're all talking to each other from the shop floor. There is nothing but them. So that gives me a little, you know, but these are not new forms. I mean that the, the, this is baseline, you know, if you want to call it syndicalism or rank and file organizing, these are old forms. Uh we're just maybe ready to revive them a little bit. I I never have hope, but I but I
2: am
0: entirely <laughs> willing to
1: I am always willing to fight, you know.
2: Well,
0: <laughs> oh, that's fair enough.
2: If I can uh, be a little arrogant here, I think the IWW uh and it's resurgence speaks to these ideas becoming popular again of this idea of union that is based on democratic principles and which understands that the working class and the employing class are in the motherfucking thunderdome except for the you know employing (laughs) class needs us and uh the so the only the only options are complete annihilation of everything that is or the Triumph of the working class. So it's not even a, a matter of uh, hope versus cynicism. It's just, well, that's what's in front of you. And I think, uh, as far as examples uh, of this horizontal unionism or syndicalism or uh, solidarity unionism, as uh, those in the IWW like to say these days, I think we're uh, shouts out Coordinadora, uh, which is a Spanish longshore union. Uh, which actually has no paid full time staff, uh, a really big steward system, and uh, union representatives who spend at least 75% of their time on the job. Uh, he, and he lists Coordinadora as an example of this. I also agree the uh, Amazonians United uh, Chicagoland is another really great example of this, of a union that is. Uh, sees like its body based on the shop floor and anything outside of it. Well, Amazon, Amazonians, United Chicago Land doesn't even uh, recognize that and outside of that the union is nothing but the committee on the shop floor. And uh, examples like that are things that I think, um, especially when, in my opinion, the PRO Act inevitably uh, either gets completely slapped down or gutted uh, entirely, People will uh, either check out, uh, move on to the next progressive liberal reform, or they will say, all right, how do I really commit to this? And I think there will be solidarity unionism or syndicalism uh, waiting to uh, put the weapons of organization in people's
0: hands. Well, with that, comrades, thanks for joining to discuss Single Jack Solidarity by Stan Weir. I think I'm just going to close this up by saying, you know, bouncing off of what you are saying, you don't need permission from the AFL-CIO to organize a union at your workplace. And as a matter of fact, you should probably just tell them to fuck off. And I'm going to make this my new mantra. So I want to leave it up to the ghost of Stan Weir to end us with this quote. Don't let people feel that their job is to sit back and admire somebody else.
1: Good to see you all.